happens and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Innovation is innovation, right? It shouldn't matter if you're a five-person startup, a hundred-year-old company, or the government. But try telling that to anyone who's ever worked on a failed labs project, or tried to pivot an established business model. They'll all tell you the same thing. It's not so easy to innovate. Today, I'm talking with Steve Blank, an entrepreneur, author, and professor, credited with laying the groundwork for the Lean Startup methodology. He has a pretty radical idea about why innovation gets harder as you get bigger. It turns out it may be an uphill battle, but it's never a lost cause. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. So, uh, you know, I spent 21 years doing eight startups in Silicon Valley, and, uh, you know, end of the, end of the day, box score was uh, four IPOs. But two craters so deep, they left their own iridium layer. And in fact, it was out of the failures. You know, if you succeed in, in, in the tech business, you think you're a Never genius. Any better, and, yeah. yeah, it doesn't get any better as all because it was a genius. But the failures, actually, if you're smart over time, that's what you learn from. And, and one of those failures was so public. I was on the cover of Wired magazine 90 days before I lost $35 million. Oh. Uh, so I had to deal with that. And you go through all the stages of grief. You, you, you know, you're in denial, then it's anger, then you blame everybody else, and then you get depressed. And then, you know, finally you come to grips with your role in it. And for me, I went through all those stages. And, and then, I'm not sure I would call it wisdom, others have, but then you try to kind of extract what were the lessons learned from those failures yeah and and what could I have done differently as a CEO and and what I learned out of that that disaster was called rocket science games Um, number one is I took into my final startup and we took the 12 million bucks from the VCs and turned it into a billion dollars each for them so I kind of ran the first one we'll describe in a second lean startup experiment in my last startup but Lean came about from my observation as follows. Yeah. In the 20th century, investors and founders were simply told that startups were smaller versions of large companies. It's not that the investors actually said those words because they didn't even understand that concept. Sure. But they basically said, well, where's the five-year plan? And where's the business plan? And, and, and by the way, a business plan is that, you know, tell us the story and tell us about the problem and how you're going to solve it and tell us about your team and then give us a five-year forecast. We want you to predict the future. What they didn't understand is in a large company, you're executing a known business model. For example, HubSpot, 10 years in, has customers, knows yeah. who the competitors are, knows what customers kind of generally want, who they, what the archetypes are, you know, what the distribution channels are. And while it's not that your company doesn't innovate on the business model, the core business is now execution of a known business model. So is it, let me just see if I can summarize that for a moment. So you said that startups aren't just smaller versions of established companies. Is it that the error that they make is in relying too much on a five-year plan and too much on predictability and not experimenting enough? You're almost there. Yeah, so... So when you have a five-year plan, you hire people with job descriptions that are known 
to execute the plan. Ah, their playbooks. Their playbooks. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I've learned this and my founders in the dim past figured out by bouncing off of walls and surviving and whatever. And now that we're large, 95% of your company is doing execution. I don't mean HubSpot. I mean every company that's scaling. If you're lucky, you're scaling. You're hiring more people who know what they do. And the mistake we made is telling a startup that all you had to do is write the plan, hire the people. We hire VP of sales, hire VP of marketing, VP of biz dev, VP of engineering, and that founder's vision that you have, go spec every possible feature, yeah. right? For first, what we called first customership. And back in the 20th century, we'd use something called a waterfall development model. That is, we do a functional specification, hand it to engineering, they'd go write code or build hardware, and then they'd go through alpha test, beta test, first customership. And the only time you'd really get customer feedback is when sales at scale now, because sales has been hiring Salesforce, goes out and goes, no one wants it. Well, by then you've been a year and a half. Far too late. And you've been burning cash. And so what we, the mistake we made was that assuming that startups were executing a known business model. And here was the insight ahead. Large companies execute known business models. Startups search for them. This distinction between search and execution had never been articulated. Yeah. And the minute you have that little light bulb, you say, well, I understand the tools for execution. You know, Harvard and, and, and Stanford and everybody for 100 years have been putting out management tools for masters of business administration. But no one had ever built a management stack for founders who weren't administering anything but we're searching for who are my customers? What features do they want? You know, what is the right channel? How do I figure out pricing strategy? There were no tools. There wasn't even a way to have that conversation. And so to, to shortcut a very long conversation, you're getting the semester pitch right here. Love it. The semester pitch is the light bulb went on and said, Amber has no clothes. <laughs> Investors who were traditionally MBAs or finance people were asking us to do what they were familiar with, but no one ever questioned why we had such infant mortality in, in startups? Why were most startups failing early on? And why when you shipped the product, the odds were pretty high that 80 to 90% of what you built was unneeded or unwanted? And so I said, I think we're doing it wrong. I think we ought to get out of the building, big idea, which was the core of customer right. development. Yeah. Core of customer development is pretty simple. It says there are no facts inside the building, so get the hell outside. So instead of arguing with your co-founders or everybody else in a, well, we used to have system planning meetings about what features or should it be blue or, yeah. you know, what should, should the button be like? It's all for internal stakeholders. Right. Why, why don't we go out and, and figure out, A, who are our customers and what features they care about? And are we sure this is the problem they have? Is this the number one problem? Oh, I believe so. Well, no, that's a faith-based argument. Right. I want to have some fact-based arguments. So I wrote this book called The Four Steps to the Epiphany which described this customer development process. Then I started teaching it in the Haas Business School at UC Berkeley, and one of the uh, ex-VPs of engineering of mine was starting a new company with a young engineer named Eric Reese. <laughs> and uh, I, I had funded a bunch of his previous companies, but this time I said, the only time I'll write you a check for this company called IMVU is if you and Eric take this class. And before Eric showed up in the class, the number of believers in what became the Lean Startup was me. Yeah. And then after Eric took the class, he became the first practitioner and had a brilliant insight I just did not have. Eric's insight was, Steve, in the 21st century, software people no longer do really smart ones, waterfall engineering. They do agile engineering. And agile engineering is this notion of you build things that are incremental and iterative as you learn about constant innovation. Constant innovation. 
But gee, Steve, you just built a constant innovation customer development process. Let's put those two things together. Right? And that was Eric's insight. And then about two years later, we discovered a guy named Alexander Osterwalder who put together a single piece of paper called the Business Model Canvas. And the Business Model Canvas describes the nine things every startup or even a large company needs to know. Who are your customers? What's their value proposition? What's the product or service? What's the channel? What's the revenue model? How do you get, keep, and grow yeah, customers? It's, right? it's fascinating right? that that was news. Right. It was news. Now, yeah. think about it. We take it for granted. What are the strategic activities you need to be expert at? What resources do you need to have internally? What, what can you do through partners? And what are the costs? So now we have three pieces. Business model canvas to articulate our hypotheses. The, sure. One of those nine. Customer development to get out and test the hypotheses. And this notion of using Agile to build an idea called minimum viable products which are, instead of prototypes, are actually science experiments of different parts of the canvas. Yeah. And so those three components became the Lean Startup. So fast forward to today. Yes. Back then, there weren't a lot of people writing about startups. There weren't a lot of people sort of studying how to succeed as a startup. Yep. Today, we're inundated, we're, we're right. inundated with, with startup advice and, and different tactics to succeed. And oddly enough, there aren't a lot of places to learn about, okay, once you've gotten a little bit of traction as a startup, how do you then scale your company? So the inverse of your question, is a bigger company, a growing company, just an advanced version of a startup, or does innovation change there? Yeah, so um, it, it's, it's funny you ask that. I just spent uh, the last couple of years now kind of getting out of the startup realm because of large companies started asking, hey, this looks pretty good. We, you know, my boss is now talking about innovation and they want us to set up a corporate lab, incubator yeah. and a lab and a, oh, great, why don't we just use this lean methodology? And so lean has been kind of adopted inside a corporation starting about, I don't know, in 2013, I had an article on the cover of the Harvard Business Review, which said the lean startup changes everything. And that kind of gave corporate incubators and, and chief innovation officers, which was starting to become a new title, kind of permission and to show their bosses, sure, see, it's, yeah. it's not this startup thing. It could be used inside. And so uh, that's when I started getting engaged in companies. And, the, and then I started getting engaged in government agencies. And here's the bad news, is that after three or four years of watching innovation in large corporations trying to use lean, I'm embarrassed to say that most of it has ended up as innovation theater. And by innovation theater, I mean great coffee cups, nice posters, good couple of memos, you know, cute open space for, for the people. Post-it notes all over the wall. But, but if you actually look at what matters is did we move the top or bottom line in a corporation at speed with urgency, it wasn't about the methodology. And that was a real light bulb for me is to realize it's not that the methodology is wrong. It obviously works in startups. And it obviously works for individual projects inside of a large company, but that's not the problem. That's not the meta problem in a large company that retards innovation. So why does it break in a larger company? So it turns out, you know, I started thinking about, it. so what is it? And, and of course, people who've worked with large corporations for innovation in the 20th century knew all this stuff. And we're circling back to some of the things they knew, except the fact is disruption is happening quicker and we have less time to innovate than we did in the 20th century. I'm sure your listeners know, but I'll just remind you, in the 20th century, the average public company stayed on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ for 50 years. Right. Right. The average public company now survives for 15. I know. It's Blows just, your hair back. But it, it does a lot of things. And, 
and, and so you had decades to worry about competitors. And so let's just back up a second. So what's changed? Com large companies didn't get stupider. The environment around them changed radically. Number one, globalization, right? We think of China now as a factory, but you know they're also a competitor, they're a customer. Here was the other one. In, in the 20th century, if you would have said to Ford or, or to Macy's or somebody else, a startup is going to put you out of business. <laughs> they would have, after they stopped laughing, they, they would were have, mountains. Neither were mountains. Startups had no capital. So it's not that startups didn't get funded, but they said, what are you going to do? Raise a couple hundred million dollars? And the answer today is yes. If you really think about it, startups focused on a specific innovation domain are putting more capital on the problem than large corporations are putting on the problem. That makes sense. Right? It's not that companies aren't spending money on R&D and whatever. It's the same sum of money, but, but it's spread out. But it's spread out. But startups want to hack your, you know, your mobile business, or Tesla wants to be the autonomous electric vehicle business. So while Ford has, you know, or GM, billions of dollars of R&D, well, how much are they spending on, you know, ooh, Tesla is, in fact, a competitive peer, for example. And, in fact, we could go through a list. One of the things that struck me was that startups can do anything when they start. Hmm. And not only anything, they could do anything, most interestingly, illegal. Uber is illegal. Airbnb is illegal. That's right. Tester's distribution model is illegal. PayPal was illegal at first. Obviously, over time, they kind of fight regulation or try to change the law, and typically those re regulations exist because the incumbents have become rent seekers. That is, they collect economic rent for not innovating, but controlling regulation or- And are, uh, are those laws in place because the incumbents are sort of defending- Of course. You know. And that's, that's only fair to a point. Uh, let's take Tesla. In the 1920s, the laws to protect auto dealers were in place to protect them from rapacious auto manufacturers. And, and so they served the purpose for the first 20 or 30 years. A hundred years later, the only purpose they serve is to protect the incumbents. Yeah, uh, who now uh, have lobbyists. Now, so, but one could take the other extreme and say, gee, I'm not sure you want to get rid of the Food and Drug Administration and let anybody put a medical device on the market or something else. So there are government regulations that actually are for health and safety. It's when they're, they're used to kind of protect the incumbents and strangle innovation, that's when innovation dies. In fact, countries that have anti-innovation laws or corruption that prevent innovation are the least innovative countries in the world. And you could just make that a list. Yeah. But what's really interesting, and, it, and again, startups could do anything. But companies, here's the big idea, companies can only do things that are legal. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that like Airbnb is the first company to ever think about what if we rented out, you know, someone's room? I'm sure someone in the hotel business thought of it. And the minute they went to their legal department, what, they, what do you think they said? We're going to be sued. Our shareholders would sue us. And is it that startups can break the law for the sake of innovation because they have, they're more risk tolerant because they don't have a history of, you know, a huge budget sheet or a big company to support that they can wait for the law to catch up with them? Yes, but, and the but really is, think about who's funding startups. It's investors, mm -hmm. risk capital investors. We call them venture capitalists at scale, but they're actually risk capital. They're weighing the odds. Uh, and they're weighing the odds about what would happen to the entire hotel business if we reinvented it. Well, that's impossible. There's a whole set of laws. And no, yep. just imagine when we figured, what would happen if we reinvented the entire taxi business? Yeah. Well, 
That's risky. That's why you took our money. Remember, VCs in a fund invest in a portfolio that is 10 to 15 bets. Yeah. And, and, and they, were, they are willing to make risk return bets. Well, you might get sued and go out of business, but if you succeed, this is a yeah. $100 billion company. So the incentive is completely different than a corporate incentive. A corporate incentive is to stay out of jail <laughs> because they already are the market leader. So they just kind of maintain the market. Yeah, incremental in, growth. In incremental growth uh, using sometimes regulation, competitive tactics, market share, et cetera, to kind of execute their existing business model. And again, it's not that companies don't invent new things, but the auto industry is a classic. Is it's, it's the auto industry have thought they were in the internal combustion business. Yeah. They were actually in the personal transportation business, and they forgot that the en that, but their expertise had become internal combustion engines, you know, transmissions, and you know, and like manual steering, and the new innovation is somewhere else. And let me just finish the third part. Please. Government agencies now, or even as I got involved, are even different than companies. Government agencies in the U.S. they can only do things mandated by law. They just can't go off and branch off into something else. And so it's not even that they can't break the law, it's that they can only create based on the law. Right. And, and, and so that's just line one of about 25 different things. So for example, in a startup, who are the innovators? How do you get innovation? Well, it's the people you hire, mm -hmm. right? Your innovation is 100% internal. Well, a company, a company has a whole set of choices. You could have your own internal team, you could partner, you could license, but you could also acquire. You could acquire startups and figure out how to integrate them in. So now you have a set of choices. But in the government, this is where it really gets funny. So government have, has smart people, and smart people innovate. But in the U.S., a lot of government headcount is actually done by contractors. And the word contractor actually means contract. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we want something to happen with a contractor. Well, guess what we have to write in the contract? We have to write what we want to have delivered. Right. Well, if we knew what we wanted to have delivered, it wouldn't be There's innovation. There's no invention there. Right? Yeah. There's no invention. And so the very nature of, of the government business, it doesn't mean there's no innovation. It just means innovation on a series of unknowns is incredibly difficult. So that's why you get incremental innovation with a uh, just an incredibly complex acquisition system that by default tries to strangle innovation. Like the internet began as right. a government project, but then... In the really thrived in the private sector. Yeah, and so you think about you know what drives innovation. So in a startup, you know it's the founder's vision and how much money you have left. In a company, you know sometimes competition or market shift drives urgency sometimes, or disruption tr triggers a crisis. And now all of a sudden we need to be innovative. Look at Macy's this year. Yeah. You know it's not like Amazon wasn't coming at the entire retail business for 15 years, but. That the, is an important distinction. I want to just draw attention to yeah. that for a minute. That what I hear you saying is that in a startup, opportunity is what drives innovation. And in a scaled company, it's really threat or disruption. Yes. And that you sort of wait for that, that threat to start innovating. Yes. And, and for example, speed in, in, a, in a startup is, you know, it's rapid, agile development, 24-7. People are sleeping in their cots. And, you know, how, yeah. how fast you move is just limited by the funding you have. But in, in a company... You know, there's still companies doing waterfall development, and it's limited by corporate processes. So, you know, there are corporate standards, and here's how we develop things, and here's how we uh, yeah. execute. And, and pivots, this notion of making a massive change once you've found something out, 
Well, if pivot is in a startup is we learned something new. Okay, yeah. now we're going over here. Founder just complete like refresh. we complete refresh. A pivot's a failure inside of a corporation. You know, our project was going X and we just learned it's Y and now you have to explain to the corporate committee about why you're oh man, that's yeah. not a that's not a good idea. Um, so let me ask you this. Are you because I don't want to bum everybody mm-hmm. out are we saying that innovation is basically doomed in no. both no, not at all. bigger companies and, and no. government? No, I'm just going through the litany of, hey, just copying lean startup methodology yeah. and just saying we could be as innovative as a startup. All this is a prequel to it's not a methodology problem. Hmm. It's a corporate culture problem and organizational problem. So if you think about it, when a large company is doing fine, you hire people who kind of come in nine to five to do a job that HR has written in a spec and they're happy doing this prescribed and by the way the title on the business card is actually a virtual hot link to that two-page job description Mm -hmm. I know what I do it says so on my business card and if I get confused I looked at that I look at that that (laughs) job description and I've done the same thing for 10 or 15 years everybody listening just pulled out their business cards to check and, and and now I got this memo that says we have to innovate? <laughs> what the hell is that? Um, so it's a culture and education problem, and it's who we hired problem. If, in fact, your company has hit a crisis, just simply turning to the, to the people inside and say, okay, you're now all innovators right. is kind of silly. It, it would just be as silly as taking all those people who've had nine-to-five jobs and put them in a startup and say, okay, you're now going to compete with company X, Y, and Z who are real founders and and startups. So you need a different mix of people, you need a different culture, and you need a way to kind of think about how do we chew gum and walk at the same time. Because you can't because you can't abandon your core business. You can't demotivate the people who are still like bringing in the core revenue. Yeah. But at the same time timing that is incredibly hard. And some companies get it wrong and some company classic company who got it wrong was uh, Blackberry, RIM. Mm-hmm. The one of the co-founders fell in love with shiny object when they realized that the iPhone was a, a competitor. Basically, abandoned their existing engineering team for a new operating system, and made that transition horribly, and and in fact failed on both ends. Yeah. And some companies did it quite well. When Apple moved from being a PC company to an iPod company to an iPhone company to an iPad company. At least from the outside world, it looked fairly seamless. And was that just culture? Was there anything else in there that separates out those that do well from those that fail? So if you really think about large companies, a couple of interesting things is large technology companies tend to still have their founders at the helm. Mm. And, and what they've done is, is realize that nowadays, at least if you're in the technology business, your business is built not just on one founder insight. It's a series of continuous innovations. You're always trying to obsolete your own product. Mm-hmm. Once you have that culture, that continuous innovation culture, you have the at least the core of a culture that allows you to kind of continue to innovate. If you have an execution culture, which typically happens when, you, and I, I don't mean to, to diss any of your listeners, but if yeah. you're a finance, you know, if you come from finance or an MBA and you're running the company, um, the odds are you're an executor. You're great in managing thousands of people. But boy, you better have an innovation core going on underneath you. Technology people kind of do that almost naturally as an instinct. Yeah. So if I'm listening and I'm in a, a mid-sized company and I am listening to you and I start to look around and I realize, oh, God, we are exactly as he described. We are just incrementing on a prescribed 
contract, a business plan that we've used for years, what's the first thing that I do? I'd go read an old McKinsey article about 20 years old now, which, I, which I've kind of updated for, for business models. It talked about three horizons of innovation, that every company should, whether large or small, should be thinking about that. Horizon one is your core business model. This is our core customers. This is what we do. 90% of our people show up to do this work. Mm -hmm. And in that horizon one it, business model, you could be doing continuous improvement and making stuff better, supply chain better, more efficiently talking to customers, et cetera. But it's your current business model. But in horizon two, you could look at that business model and say, wait a minute, can we use a different channel? Or, wait a minute, we already got some great customers. What other products through our existing channel and our existing manufacturing could we sell to those customers? So extending a business model is the first layer of innovation. And, and almost always the first person to lie across the tracks, even when you're extending a business model, is the VP of sales. Yeah. Oh, that's channel conflict. Good. <laughs> that's exactly what we need or else we're going to go out of business. And I'm using that as a proxy for Absolutely. that's kind of easy innovation. But the type of innovation that's really hard is Horizon 3 innovation. Horizon 3 innovation is disruptive. It's putting your own products out of business, mm -hmm. or it's creating enormous conflict, or, or gee, we're not even expert at it. And if you look at great technology companies that have survived and scaled, they're expert at it. Amazon sold books <laughs> when right? they started, Absolutely. right? Forget about what they've now brought in their existing Horizon 1 business to, but they've created Amazon Web Services, Kindle, content, etc. Those are disruptors in Horizon 3. Yeah. Or look at Apple, which was a personal computer company. They disrupted three different industries in 10 years or seven years that Jobs was moving through them. They disrupted music. They disrupted video. They disrupted watches. They disrupted phones. Yeah. And, and none of it, if one were to look back, had anything to do with their Horizon 1 business. Right? The, the only extension they made for the Horizon 1 business, which was the, uh, the Max, was they opened retail stores. Right? That was a Horizon 2 move. But everything else, an iPhone, people would say, what do you know about phones? Yeah. In fact, when they first entered the phone business, both uh, Steve Ballmer and, and the head of uh, Palm, uh, the original personal uh, PDA, laughed at them and said, well, you know, you don't have any of the expertise needed. And, of course, they figured that out. So if I'm a CEO and you think about these three horizons, what happens is you go, how much money, time, and people do I allocate for each? Typically in an in a average, and there is no average company, but let's take one, 60 to 70% of your spending money, people ought to be in horizon one. This is my core execution stuff. Okay. 15 to 20% ought to be in horizon two. It's still my core business, but I'm extending it. Sure. I'm looking for new opportunities, but it's familiar. Uh, yeah, my channel might get mad or I've different materials in manufacturing or new customers I'm going to experiment with. But if you don't have a Horizon 3 group, and by the way, Horizon 3 doesn't necessarily have to be internal people. It could be your M&A group. I'm acquiring a startup here, and we're going to run them as an experiment because we really need to get into autonomous vehicles if we were Ford. Right. So you're watching the auto manufacturers now struggle to realize that they are being disrupted mm -hmm. and like it's coming right at them. And so now instead of building, they're now buying. Okay, so let's shift gears for a minute and talk about government because right. that is the third prong that, that you sort of set up and we scraped the surface on a little bit. What is the second or third horizon for government agencies? Let's go back up and say, well, why does government need, even need to be innovative? Let's take a, the, the Defense Department, which I've been working with. 
if you think about it, that company can afford to go out of business, or at least the economy, you know, is not going to screech to a halt if sure. company X or Y goes out of business. We really can't afford to have our defense department go out of business or our intelligence agencies go out of business. And much like corporations in the 20th century, we really never had many competitors. In fact, during the 20th century, we only had one, which was the Soviet Union. Right. Both the U.S. and the Soviet Union worked on almost the same time scales. I mean, you had years or decades. They to, were inching forward. You know, new weapons. They came up with something. We came up with something. They did X. We did Y. In the 21st century, the whole game has changed for U.S. defense and intelligence. Number one is we have non-nation state actors, which is a fancy word for saying terrorists like ISIS and mm -hmm. al-Qaeda. They don't follow the rule book. In fact, they're the classic... They are the complete disruptor. The complete disruptor. So, I mean, the U.S. military has the cheapest drone we have is a $40,000 drone. They were using DJA phantoms to drop hand grenades in Iraq. Literally off-the-shelf $400 drones. Boom. You know, or they were planting uh, improvised explosive devices, which took out tanks and slowed uh, and maimed and killed the service people. They didn't have million-dollar tanks, but they had ways to both disable them and d disable all the soft Humvees we had at first in Iraq. And then for near-peer competitors, it's not only Russia, but we now have China to worry about in the, in the Pacific. We have Iran, we have North Korea, and we never actually planned for that. We still mm -hmm. acquire major weapon systems over decades. F-35s and aircraft carriers. And, and the and so very means of war is changing. Completely You're now changing. thinking about cyber and, and uh, intelligence whole, and right. security. All, all that. So, mm -hmm. so the conclusion is, is that, yes, we still need to buy aircraft carriers and whatever because there are peer and near-peer threats, but we now also need to figure out how to act uh, and deal with asymmetrical disruptors. Yeah. Um, and that's hard for organizations that historically acquire things with a formal requirements process and then acquisition process, et cetera, and who have very specified missions to support the current things we do, let alone predict new things. So the good news is, is that much like inside of corporations, and maybe even more so inside of the, the, where I've been spending time, Department of Defense and Intelligence community, there are what we'd call innovation insurgents. There are people raising their hands who are saying, we can't go on like this. Hmm. Uh, we're going to get our butts kicked, and in some places we are. And we need to do something better and faster. And what's really interesting is um, they've adopted lean methodologies probably even better than corporations have. So what has been publicly announced is the National Security Agency and the National Geospatial Agency, two of our intelligence agencies, have adopted the lean startup methodology. So there are people who are now leading that charge using this methodology, and it works incredibly well until it runs into the same organizational bottlenecks that corporations do is, well, wait a minute, we're too busy to give you those extra resources to actually deploy and scale those because you're not in our budget, you weren't a requirement. You, you know, and are they operating outside of the standard sort of no, contract and processes? Well, no, they're, they do until they get to that. Right. And then the requirements people go, well, wait a minute, this wasn't in our budget, Congress didn't authorize X, and now you're asking for new program Y. There's no, still no formal innovation pipeline or process. And it's the same problem in corporations. The, the good news about so far about U.S. military is that in wartime, we tend to be one of the most innovative organizations in the world. 
it's in peacetime we default to the world's largest bureaucracy. So the, the metaphor there would be in, in crisis, like with big companies, you innovate, and in good times, right. you are just solving for right. the short term. Right. And the, and the problem is, is in peacetime is where we don't have a formal innovation pipeline that's parallel to the execution pipeline that exists. And again, because the execution pipeline is actually given guidance and requirements and metrics, and you kind of go, well, wait a minute, all we have is like execution for our current mission, but we don't have any like guidance and requirements. You can't for, absorb that back into the And fold. there's no money or people or headcount or whatever. People, smart people will fix this or we'll be in a crisis again and we'll wonder why yeah. we weren't able to innovate How, as fast. You're teaching this right now in two courses at Stanford. I'm curious about, so you're trying to develop the people who will then go be those innovators. So here's what government. happened. It's it's really kind of an interesting story, and I'll, I'll make it short. And um, So we've been talking about lean, the theory, yeah. lean in companies. But all it was was theory. There's a couple of books. Eric Ries wrote a great book, Lean Startup. I wrote Four Steps to the Epiphany, Startup Owner's Manual. Alexander Osterwalder wrote the Business Model Generation book and then Value Proposition Canvas. The work of the three of us are kind of the core of what's lean. Mm -hmm. But there was never a class. You say, okay, I got it. I read all the books. How do I do this? So in 2011, I, Stanford University, where I teach, I put together a course called the Lean Startup. Actually, the Lean Launch, sorry, it's called the Lean Launchpad. Uses all the methodology, but actually takes student teams of four, and in 10 weeks, they have to get out of the building and talk to over 100 customers, partners, regulators. That's no joke. And build a minimum viable product every week. And they have to present in front of the teaching team weekly, and we hit them by, with two-by-fours. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty brutal class. But what comes out of it is just spectacular stuff. I mean, it's unbelievable. And what happened was this was such a radical idea. Believe it or not, in 2011, at Stanford, at Berkeley, and every other university in the country, the capstone class you would take for innovation was how to write a business plan. That was it. Really? That's what we were teaching. What else was there? Sure. That's, that's yeah. what we did for 100 years. That's the playbook. Well, I said, that's wrong. What we need is a course like this, Lean Launchpad. Because it was so radical. Because I, I actually taught how to write a business plan, and I had to hold my nose because I knew I was lying to my students. I blogged every week at this new class. Here's what I taught. Here's what the students presented. Here's what I learned and whatever. What I didn't realize is back in Washington, D.C., the head of innovation and commercialization for the National Science Foundation was reading every blog. And it turns out the U.S. government for 30 years have been funding our nation's best scientists who said, I want to turn my science into a company. We hand them checks for half a million dollars or two million dollars. And the results were horrible for 30 years. Thank God oh. Congress never asked, how well are we doing? I know, that's brutal. Um, and so the head of the program, Errol Arkeluk, read my blog and said, this is it. Called me up and said, we think you invented the scientific method for entrepreneurship. The U.S. government needs you. We want to do this program. That's got to be a cool moment. Fast forward. Here's the cool moment. Six years later, this class, it's, and the NSF renamed it. It's called the Innovation Corps, or I-Corps, is now taught at 53 U.S. universities. We've put 1,600 of the best scientists and their teams through the class. And we've affected how science is commercialized and how these principal investigators think about commercialization. Yeah. So that's the setup for the question you just asked. Is so how does this affect defense and the government? So we did this and still going on, taught a lot of universities. I still teach the class at Stanford and Berkeley, and I 
I'm a senior fellow at Columbia, and I go teach that there as well. But I met up with two ex-Army colonels at Stanford, one a guy named Pete Newell, who ran the Army's Rapid Equipping Force in Iraq and Afghanistan. Think of him as the technology innovator of tough problems. We didn't have things to counter IEDs. or inter- right. Pete's job was to run around the U.S. and find technology that would solve that problem, bypass everything, go get that to the field. And, and he ran that for a couple of years. And uh, then he retired to Palo Alto, where I met him. And the other colonel I met was the next Special Forces operator named Joe Felter, who had gotten his Ph.D. at Stanford. And we started brainstorming and realized that they had recognized that there were these insurgents who were asking, dying for some methodology inside the Department of Defense. And I said, why don't we take the lean startup methodology, the same class I'm teaching, where you come in, students come in with their ideas, or scientists come in with their ideas, why don't we turn it on its head and go out to the Department of Defense and intelligence community and say, give us your toughest problems, Hmm. and we'll have student teams work on them, understand the problem, and deliver MVPs, minimum viable products, at the end of 10 weeks. And if this works, we'll scale this to the best research universities in the country and now be able to work on hundreds, if not thousands, of the best. That's impact. And so we taught it last year. We're now teaching the second version at Stanford as we speak. But more importantly, this January, eight schools stood up and are teaching Hacking for Defense. And hopefully by next year, we'll have another 10. And in three years, maybe we'll hit the same 50 that we have for um, what's called the I-Corps. Now, what, what happened by accident, and this is when things get fun in Silicon Valley, is the State Department had a technical representative in Silicon Valley who sat through the class. Sure. And immediately said, well, the State Department has a set of problems. Do you think Stanford students would like to work on those? And so 90 days later, we started hacking for diplomacy with Zvika Krieger from um, the State Department and uh, Professor Jeremy Weinstein, who's a professor of policy at, yeah. uh, uh, at Stanford. And John Kerry came out, kicked off the class, and... Uh, it, it was spectacular. We were solving refugee problems. I was going to say, can you give me an example of a problem that a state, state department would? The one that away? sticks in my head is, you know, refugees were trying to cross the Mediterranean, and some of them died, no identification on them. What do you do? Mm-hmm. And the refugees were kind of, they didn't want to leave wallets or whatever because they could be identified and people. So we, the teams went out and interviewed refugees and in, interviewed the forensic folks. Still, that were, to interview a hundred people. Hundred people. Yeah. Um, and what they discovered was we could make essentially wristbands that they could write their phone numbers on, and God forbid something happened to them, they would have a contact information, but the bands were designed that they could tear them off when they got to the other side, so no one could identify them. Right. So it was kind of like a 21st century dog tag. Um, mm-hmm. So that was one problem. Uh, and, and there were others equally interesting that all came from state. And what was interesting is, of course, it attracted a different stack of students than Hacking for Defense. And, yeah. Uh, now, what happened is this whole hacking for methodology has now turned into hacking for X. So Columbia University just finished a hacking for energy. Berkeley, where you would expect it, Professor Amy Herr is about to do a hacking for nonprofits, hacking for impact. and uh, All using the same model. All using the exact same. Lean, this is the lean model, yeah. right? So we now, you know, get out of the building, build MVPs, you know, uh, present weekly do speed and urgency matters more than being perfect, build prototypes, whatever. And, and then at Stanford, we're going to do hacking for cities uh, uh, for urban resiliency. And so this hacking for X thing has 
caught on just as much as the kind of the lean startup model. And it allows, think about it, if you really kind of get it down to its core, we've been doing hackathons forever. But we never had a methodology. We never had a way to say, what problem are we solving? And, and how what, do you bring it from the innovation we, lab into right. a real... And, and how do we deliver stuff? And how do we, you know, and, mm -hmm. and so there's nothing wrong with weekend ha hackathons. But this is a multi-week program where we're, get, we're deeply understanding the, the problem. And by the way, at least half the time, we pivot from the original sponsor's problem because they didn't understand the problem deeply enough. That's interesting. Or, or gee, you thought the problem was X, but no, no, no. Somebody else is solving it. You're just too siloed to understand what this other group is doing. Or did you know about X or Y? And, and that's always fascinating. Um, so the start is a lean startup methodology turned into a class uh, called Lean Launchpad at Stanford, which the National Science Foundation adopted and called it i -Corps. It became mandated for every federal research agency, NIH, DOE, Department of Defense, NASA, in federal legislation, bipartisan last December. It's now written into federal law that this is the way you do commercialization of science. And then the Hacking for program came up just because I spent four years in the military and I realized that we made a major mistake 40 years ago when we disconnected the body populace from any form of national service. Mm -hmm. And that I had students whose first thought ever is, do I work for Google, Facebook, Twitter, or something else? And never once did, how do I serve the country in any way, not just joining the military, ever cross their minds. And so my other intent of doing hacking for defense and diplomacy I don't care what branch of government, but unless you're engaged, people into other people are going to be running the country, and you know you, you at least should understand who is. Yeah. Um, so sorry to. No, you know. that's that's great, and um, it's it's an impressive story. I I kind of want to leave it with one final question for you, which is: you've served your country, you've spent time as an entrepreneur, you are involved in a bunch of conservation organizations. What's the problem that still haunts you? What's the thing that you want to see solved? Well, you know, it's the when I was in, in my 20s, I always thought, and, and even, even earlier, I thought, well, we'll be the generation to solve poverty, mm -hmm. you know, inequity, you know, injustice. And I think I was, uh, had no sense of history at the time. You know, it's been with possible. us. It, 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 no, it seemed possible, but... But when you have a sense of history, you look back and you say, regardless of what society we created, we always seem to have those problems. But I've also concluded as I even got older, instead of giving up on it, that is in fact our job of every generation, is that even though it will probably be with us forever, those of us who are successful or, or at least have a shot at trying to solve some of these things, have a moral obligation to kind of do that. And so when I retired, I guess I could have went home, played golf or eat chocolates. But after I stopped being an entrepreneur, I thought one of the ways I could give back is, is try to teach and at least let my students not screw up the 50 ways I did and they could come up with their own new ways. And then also try to work on making the, you know, my state better and country better and, and uh, maybe do something good for the world. As I said, I, I, I think we have a, or at least I, I think we have a moral obligation to do that, even though I am convinced <laughs> that it will continue for as long as human beings uh, have variety, different people of different skill sets and different motivations. But those of us who are more capable uh, are actually more responsible. All right, Steve, thank you so right. much for your time. That's a great place to leave it. Uh, one of the things that I love about Steve is he has so much of this available for the public. So 
whether you're in his class or not, you can go find the syllabi, you can go download slides, you can read the book. So where can everybody find? So if you go to steveblank.com, mm -hmm. uh, just look at nice all the tabs. Easy. Nice and easy. And, uh, and also, if you ever wanted to know how Silicon Valley actually got started, there's a tab on the top called The Secret History of Silicon Valley. Perfect. That okay. is a great Easter egg for our audience. Thank you okay. so much, Steve. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, you could rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps spread the word. And if you want to drop us a line, we're always around on Twitter, at The Gross Show. We'll be sure to respond.